Thank you, Raymond. I made the mistake of putting my mask on first and yeah, problems we hope will end in 2021 at some point. Um, it's wonderful to be with you again. I said that this morning, I know, but let me just again reiterate what a pleasure it is to be in Westchester and to be with you here at, at Christ Church and uh, to get to share time again in fellowship with, with Raymond, who's just a dear friend and brother in the Lord and a wonderful partner in ministry. Um, I'm thankful for you, Raymond. I don't mind saying it in front of everyone. I love you, proud of you, and uh, rejoicing what God's doing through you here in Westchester. And uh, so glad Charlie can be here. He's especially excited to sit through a lecture on Carl F.H. Henry. You're at 13 years old. Where else would you rather be? I see a little beautiful little girl there, toddler. I'm sure she's thrilled that mom and dad brought her to uh, a Sunday night theology. So you're raising her well. And um, Carl Henry would be proud. Uh, I, I want to just maybe preface what I'm going to say uh, tonight with uh, a recognition that for many of you, maybe for most of you, Carl F.H. Henry is uh, an unfamiliar figure, and in some ways, uh, largely inconsequential may not be the right word, but, but forgotten for sure, and, uh, and his legacy, almost, it, it's almost as if we were talking tonight about what's the place of Ben Franklin in 2021. I mean, it might as well be talking about dinosaurs who once roamed the earth because their, their moment in time seems so remote from the one we know and experience. But the title that was distributed for this is, I, I hope, somewhat relevant and maybe illuminating, uh, Evangelical Identity and Public Witness, The Legacy of Carl F.H. Henry for Today. So I really want to, in the time that we have, and I, I'm going to read the room and see if, if, I, if you start fading on me. Um, Oliver and Josh know this from when I was their professor. If I see you falling asleep, I will pivot and do something. I'll maybe say something provocative. I don't know. I won't. But uh, I'll do something to get you awake. And if, and if I just lose you all together, then we'll, we'll land the plane and we'll go to questions and answer and uh, see what's on your mind and what you're thinking about. Uh, I want to use Henry just really as kind of a lens for us to consider some of these bigger questions together. And before I do that, let me just say, I'm using this terminology of evangelicalism in a very deliberate way. Um, let me just, again, by way of preface, say I realize in 2021, it is safe to say that uh, no one has a clue what we mean by evangelical anymore. Um, this is a matter of deeply contested terminology, not only within Christianity, but within the culture at large. So the press, for example, will often use the term evangelical uh, to denote a merely sociological category, uh, reflecting categories of either you know, political activity, you know, how people vote, um, do, uh, maybe sometimes racial or ethnic uh, connotations, uh, any number of sociological terms that are attached to it. And it has very little to do, in fact, with theological conviction. Uh, it's you, you know, far more associated with, say, a pol you know, political party affiliation. And if you look at even the polling on who is and who isn't an evangelical, it's increasingly even untethered from church attendance. <laughs> According to the pollsters, you can be an evangelical and have no meaningful church association. So when you look at polls that speak about the disposition of American evangelicals, it's increasingly hard to understand who are we even talking about. Is it kind of just another political uh, identity group? Well, I, I'm not using the terminology in that way. Um, I'm not using it politically. I'm not using it sociologically. And in some sense, I'm using it historically. But I want to argue, I think, in keeping with Dr. Henry's proposal and vision, that it's a profoundly theological identity. 
And before it has any sociological implications, before it has any political implications, before it has any socioeconomic implications, it is fundamentally and primarily a theological designation with a theological cohesion to it, an identity of ideas, uh, truth propositions. Um, so I'll try to unpack that with you a little bit. If you want to think more about that, you, you can look, for example, uh, David Bebbington, who's a prominent historian from the United Kingdom. He wrote a famous article. You'll sometimes hear this thrown around, Bebbington's Quadrilateral. And David Bebbington argued there are four uh, theological commitments that evangelicals both in Great Britain and in North America have had, and, and now the global evangelical movement. And um, we, we can save that for the Q&A if you want. I just realized if I go down that rabbit trail, uh, I will have a hard time getting on the main trail. So let me, let me get into what I've got for you tonight. Um, so first, just an introduction to Carl Henry. Uh, it, it might seem odd. You'll have to forgive these, by the way. This is part of me aging, apparently, but it's, it's probably good that I don't not use them. Uh, it might seem odd to suggest that American Christianity in 2021 needs to retrieve the work and the voice of someone like Carl Henry. Uh, his, his work really seems to be, like I said earlier, something of a bygone era. Uh, he came of age in the years after World War II, um, which might as well, I mean, we're talking Happy Days and Mayberry, I mean, a different world in American culture. Some of you don't even know what Happy Days was. You've got to go find Archie. And Anyway, he came of age in this remarkable period of economic growth, you know, the baby boom, the Eisenhower era, American foreign policy expanding. Uh, it seemed a world very different from the one that you and I know. Um, so is there really anything that we can learn from someone like Carl Henrius, a theologian born over a century ago and now dead for uh, quite some time? Uh, we'll say more about this later. Carl Henry did not get everything right. Uh, I will, as appropriate, and maybe even in our conversation, I'll point out to you some areas where I think Dr. Henry um, failed to recognize some things that were developing under the surface, or he underestimated other developments. Um, but in the main, I think mostly, there is so much value in retrieving what he sought to do and sought to build. Uh, Carl Ferdinand Howard Henry, how's that for a name? Carl Ferdinand Howard Henry was the son of German immigrants. Born in New York, he spent most of his uh, childhood years on Long Island. His father was a German baker, and his mother uh, you know, really raised their family. Uh, his earliest ambitions were for journalism. So he knew from early on he had a way with words, and in those days, uh, being a trained typist was a matter of hireability. If you could type at a certain rate per minute, chances were you were going to get employed. Um, now, that's a, you know, that's a bygone era, but he was a skilled typist, and his ambitions, as I said, were for journalism. He actually ended up even being a stringer for the New York Times, so he got work for the New York Times. He worked in newspapers throughout Long Island and in, in Manhattan. Um, and found some measure of success. But his life was radically transformed and redirected vocationally uh, when, at the age of uh, 20 years old, he was stuck in a car during a thunderstorm. Now, he'd heard the gospel before. He was, in some ways, familiar with Christianity. Uh, his parents were nominally Christian, but uh, no real gospel message in his home. But he'd been exposed to the truth of the gospel. But here he found himself in his car at 20 years old in a violent thunderstorm. And if you know the spiritual biography of Martin Luther, there are some interesting echoes here. 
You may remember that Luther uh, famously found himself not in, a, in an automobile, but he found himself on a, on a journey by foot in the middle of a violent thunderstorm, feared for his life, cried out to God, well, actually cried out to St. Anne, uh, save me and I'll become a monk. And uh, he kept his promise to St. Anne. He became a monk after his life was spared, but that sent him on a trajectory towards his eventual conversion as a monk in the monastery at Erfurt. Well, for Carl Henry, thankfully, there was no prayer to St. Anne. There was no trajectory to a monastery in Germany, but he did uh, have a confrontation with the power and the fear of the Lord in that storm. And it, he puts it this way in his own spiritual autobiography. He says, a fiery bolt of lightning, like a giant flaming arrow, seemed to pin me to the driver's seat, and a mighty roll of thunder unnerved me. When the fire fell, I knew instinctively that the great archer, capital G, capital A, the great archer had nailed me to my own footsteps. He had a way with words. And in that moment, it was a, it was a redirection for him. Uh, that sent him on his way to Wheaton College in, near Chicago, Illinois. Many of you may be familiar with Wheaton College. He's, he went there in 1935, and it was there at Wheaton that he began to build the outlines under, under some really influential teachers. He began to build the infrastructure, really, for a Christian worldview, uh, a robust way of seeing the world according to biblical truth. Uh, one of his classmates was Billy Graham. And so he finds himself there in this really ground zero of this growing evangelical movement. Now, if I can say something about that, uh, when we talk about evangelicalism in the 20th century, Henry is coming of age right as this movement is emerging. So if we were to look at the early 20th century, we would see really the great contest was between what we might call mainline liberalism and Protestantism. So those are the established denominational structures in the Presbyterian Church, the Methodist Church, the Lutheran Church, and yes, in the Baptist churches. We don't have a Baptist church. Uh, but as you may know, those denominations, sometimes known as mainline Protestant denominations, were increasingly plagued by theological liberalism at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th centuries. And you had heresy trials famously in the Presbyterian Church. You had great controversies at seminaries like Union Theological Seminary in New York uh, and, and all throughout those mainline denominations. And the, the battle line was between the, uh, the, the liberals, so to speak, the mainline Protestants, and what were sometimes known as the fundamentalists. And for some time, especially in the 1910s and even into the 1920s, there was an attempt to wrestle over control over those denominations and the institutions affiliated with them between the fundamentalists and the liberals, or sometimes known as the modernists. And the debates largely centered around the inspiration and authority of the Bible, uh, the reliability of the scriptures, particularly those historic texts in Genesis that had to do, obviously, with, with the creation accounts. They also had to do with the person and work of Jesus Christ. What happened at the cross? Why did Jesus have to die? Was he raised bodily on the third day? Uh, was, he, uh, was he born of a virgin? All those kind of apostolic Christianity 101 questions were suddenly up for debate in the early part of the 20th century. And so fundamentalism lost those battles. Now, they didn't lose the battle of ideas, but they lost the battle of denominations. And they were forced to retreat into exile from those mainline denominations. And they started their own uh, institutions, great many number of Bible colleges, publishing houses, missions agencies, and, and the like. 
And so Carl Henry is coming of age. He's there at Wheaton College in the mid-1930s, as I said, in a particular moment when it seems that conservative Christianity is on the defensive, retreating from the culture, building you know, radio networks, but kind of on the, on the margins. And Henry, along with people like Billy Graham and others who would emerge in the late 1930s and especially into the 1940s and 50s, will be part of what was sometimes called neo-evangelicalism. This, this attempt to say, okay, we've, we've fought for truth, we've fought for orthodoxy, but we cannot abandon the world. We cannot abandon the Great Commission. We cannot abandon all of this, this kind of vision of, of Christian witness in all of life, this kind of retreatism. That book that uh, was given out, I think a couple of you got his uneasy conscience. I'll say more about that in a moment. But that really was his call towards a recovery of cultural engagement. And so, but here he is, he's coming of age in the 1930s at Wheaton College. Uh, he also met his wife Helga there, and they had a wonderful marriage for decades and decades, uh, but that's where he met Helga, and they married in 1940. He finished two degrees at Wheaton, you didn't know that you could do that, and then he went on to earn a Doctor of Theology at Northern Baptist Theological Seminary, and then another doctorate, a PhD in philosophy at Boston University. Um, he studied under one of the premier personalist philosophers of the time there at Boston University. So Carl Henry was no lightweight intellectually. He could play in the best arenas in higher education. And what you hear a little bit even in that little bullet list of his biography is this attempt on his part and others like him to re-engage the culture. So he, he had had the experience of learning and training at Christian institutions, but he also wanted to go and get that PhD at Boston University so that he could engage in the world of ideas, he could make claims for truth, and he could contend for Christ. And that, I think, was very formative to him. He was also a part of the founding faculty of Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. So he joined the faculty, the very first group of faculty in 1947 there in Pasadena, and if you know anything of the history of Fuller, it was, it was intended at least to be kind of the epitome of this neo-evangelical vision. The idea that it would hold on to the theological orthodoxy of the fundamentalists, but it would pair with it a vision for robust cultural engagement and academic seriousness and, and, and scholarship. Um, evangelism, yes, but also biblical scholarship, dealing with the text, doing uh, all, all the work of, of, of heavy lifting, so to speak, intellectually. And the conviction that Christianity has the answers, that Christianity doesn't have to flee from the public square, but it can lean into the public square and truth can stand on its own two feet. So he's, he was there as part of the founding faculty. He spent actually 11 years there as a faculty member. And then he spent 12 years as the first editor-in-chief of a new magazine that Billy Graham's father-in-law wanted to help fund and underwrite. You may have heard of it, Christianity Today, still around. He was editor of Christianity Today from 1956 to 1968. There's a famous account, uh, you, may, you may get a kick out of this, you may not, I don't know, but Karl Barth, who was by far and away the world's most prominent theologian of his generation, Karl Barth was from Germany, he came to give lectures in the United States uh, while Dr. Henry was editor at Christianity Today. and. Uh, Henry was in this press conference where Bart was, was speaking, and a uh, question was raised about the resurrection. 
And, and Bart, if you have an interest in, in 20th century modern theology, Bart doesn't quite fit into any box. He, he was critical of the liberals, but he also was not a fundamentalist. Uh, he's, he's brilliant mind, fascinating figure, that'd be a whole other talk. But, but Henry found himself trying to pin Karl Barth down on the bodily resurrection of Christ and basically asked the question, I'm paraphrasing, but said, Dr. Barth, if a journalist had been there on that Sunday morning in Jerusalem after Good Friday, would they have witnessed a bodily resurrection? You know, kind of trying to force Barth to explain, do you believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ? And Barth, in kind of a dismissive way, you know, because Dr. Henry said, I'm Carl Henry, editor of Christianity Today. And Bart famously said, you mean Christianity of yesterday? And Henry, without skipping a beat, says, well, Christianity of yesterday, today, and, and forevermore. Uh, he, he was not short or slow on, on the take. He gave it as good as he, he took it. So he was editor of Christianity Today during those formative uh, 12 years. And he was also instrumental in groups like the National Association of Evangelicals. Uh, the Berlin Congress for Evangelism. He, he was, if there was any kind of evangelical initiative or effort, you were likely going to find Carl Henry involved with it. He was a prolific author and theologian. Without question, his magnum opus was a six-volume series that he wrote from 1973 to 1983. So when these volumes came out, it was a big deal. Uh, in fact, you could buy the whole set. You would subscribe to the series, and every time, you know, when a new volume was released, they'd ship it to you. This was obviously before Amazon Prime, but uh, this was a big deal, this series. It was called God, Revelation, and Authority. And uh, we, I noticed we did not give out a set of God, Revelation, and Authority tonight. You would have to have, you know, a little, a little satchel or bag, a backpack to carry it home, but you can still get it. Thankfully, Crossway has kept it in print, and you can even get it digitally now. Uh, but the book, the series, laid out 15 theses. And I'm going to say, I'm not going to give you these theses. We're going to say more in a moment about why this, this series is so important today even. Uh, each of these theses was connected to another. But they all had to do with the matter of divine revelation. I'll, again, I'll say more about this in a moment. But for Carl Henry, I think if you want to understand Carl Henry, this is the theological question that is primary. Is it, does God exist and has he spoken? And if those two questions are answered in the affirmative, then it changes everything. So let me, let me try to rehearse with you some of these categories. I'm, trying, I'm going to frame it in terms of evangelical identity. Now, I, I, we could add more to this list, um, but I'm trying to give you just a snapshot. And then in the discussion, maybe if you have thoughts or contributions you, you would add to this, then that sure would be helpful. But I'm going to try to give you some categories to define what we mean by evangelical identity that I think were true for Carl Henry in his time and can and should be true in our time. So first, and you, I already tipped my hand here, but evangelical identity is grounded in divine revelation. So when we say we are evangelical people, well, we are saying something even in the term, right, about the evangel, the good news, the gospel. We'll say more about that later, but you don't have a gospel if you don't have divine revelation. Because the gospel is, in its substance, it is a collection of truth propositions that we proclaim to the world a message that has been given to us, entrusted to us by God himself. 
Henry might have put it a little differently in a, in a way of saying it, that the God who created all things is also the God who has chosen to reveal himself in words. And Henry was important, I think, and helpful in reminding us of the distinction in classical Christian theology between what's known as general revelation and special revelation. And if you will indulge this professor for a moment, uh, I fear we have lost sight of this in contemporary evangelicalism. But Henry affirmed what the Protestant reformers affirmed and what Christian theology at its finest has affirmed for two millennia, that God has revealed himself in creation. He's the, the, the heavens declare the glory of God, we're told in Scripture. All that exists bears witness to who God is. In fact, this is why Paul in Romans 1 claims that no one is without excuse for their sin and for their rebellion against the Creator, because everything in the created cosmos has been programmed to testify to the glory of God, that He exists, that He is due obedience and praise, and therefore that all humanity must render Him allegiance. The problem is not in the creation. What's the problem? It's in here. It's in there. It's our problem. It's sin, right? So thanks be to God, in His grace, God gives us special revelation, first and foremost in the person of His Son, the living Word Himself, Jesus Christ, and in His Word, His written Word. And this was, now we're getting to the part that Henry wanted to give particular attention to. Because you could find a mainline Protestant liberal who would say, general revelation? Absolutely. I'm, I believe in that. You could find even a, a mainline Protestant who would say, yes, Jesus is the Word of God. Karl Barth would have said that. But when you start to say that God reveals himself in his special revelation in sentences and in paragraphs, now you're talking about something very different. You're talking about what theologians refer to as verbal plenary inspiration, that the very words themselves are God's Word. It's not that this book becomes the Word of God when it's proclaimed. It's not that it contains the Word of God in certain parts. No, it is the Word of God without mixture of error. I got one amen from one Baptist in the room. Maybe two, I don't know. But this idea that divine revelation is the cornerstone. This is the cornerstone idea of his whole, that magnum opus I mentioned to you, of God, revelation, and authority. In other words, you can hear it in the title. If God exists and he has revealed himself, then he has authority. <laughs> That's kind of the logical sequence there. Let me give you, this is the very first thesis. Revelation is a divinely initiated activity. Divinely initiated. Every sentence in Henry is packed. God's free communication by which he alone turns his personal privacy into a deliberate disclosure of his reality. Let me read that last clause again. He turns his personal privacy into a deliberate disclosure of his reality. I mean, consider for a moment the magnitude of what Henry is suggesting here. And he's right, by the way. This is Christian Theology 101. That because God chooses in his kindness and in his grace to forego, as Henry puts it, his personal privacy, his right to privacy in the triune Godhead. He has no obligation. God is not compelled or obligated in any way to reveal himself to, to you and to me as his creatures. And yet he does so. He forgoes his privacy and does what? A deliberate disclosure of his reality 
That is to say, in his revelation of himself, we actually come to know God as he truly is, as he really, really is. We don't have a mediated understanding. If This is where we could get into the Enlightenment in Immanuel Kant. Let me just suggest something to you here. This was the great epistemic gap in the Enlightenment, right? Kant would suggest there are things as they really are in themselves, right? The noumenal. And that there is an epistemological, a knowledge gap. We don't have access to things as they really are. What we have access to is the phenomenological. We, we see things as we experience them, or we know things as we experience them. So, so can you really know God as he really is? Well, for the post-enlightenment mind, it was, no, you really can't. You know the phenomenal. You know the experience of the divine that you have. And, and, but there's this gap. And here comes this Carl Henry guy, writing at the second half now of the 20th century, saying, no, 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 no. When God suspends his right to personal privacy and he reveals himself, you know him in reality. You have an immediate confrontation with the word of the living God. I think perhaps more than any other 20th century American evangelical, Henry summoned every force he could to articulate and to defend a historic understanding of divine revelation and the trustworthiness of the Bible. Now, sometimes this gets, would confuse people because there was a lot of debate, including in the denomination of which I'm a part and this church is cooperating with in the Southern Baptist Convention, there was a lot of debate in the 1980s, for example, about inerrancy. And that is a crucial doctrine. But it is not the whole and substance of what we believe about the Scriptures. There is a lot more to be said about a Christian theology of, of, of the Bible than merely the doctrine of inerrancy. And Henry, I think more than anyone, was insistent that, yes, contend for inerrancy, contend for the absolute truthfulness of the Scripture, but don't forget there is a lot more to Christian theology of the Bible than only inerrancy. I'll give you a couple of examples of this. He was of the conviction that knowing God is the fundamental existential urgency for every human being that's ever lived. That is the primary and most urgent question before any human being who's ever known, is those who are made in God's image. And yet, as I alluded to earlier, he acknowledged what historic Protestant theology had, that sin has so blinded human beings to the knowledge of God that we are absolutely dependent on God's self-revelation. God must condescend to us, revealing himself, partly because we are finite creatures, but far more so even because of our fallenness and sin. So he wants to bring to bear this, this holistic, comprehensive, high view of Scripture, that it is inerrant, it is infallible, it is inspired, and it is absolutely essential. You cannot know God if you do not know his word. And therefore, defending the authority and the trustworthiness of Scripture is no secondary matter. It is no debatable, you know, well, we can just agree to disagree. No, if we can't, if we can't agree on what the word of God is, we are going to have a very hard time traveling together, so to speak, in the way of Jesus. Let me give you another. This is uh, from an editorial he wrote for Christianity Today in 1972. And the title of this editorial was, Who Are the Evangelicals? It's actually a rather timely editorial, even now, all these years later. He says here, Evangelical Christianity is properly suspicious of every effort to reconstruct the heritage of Christian faith 
that gives low visibility to the authority of Scripture. It's unabashed epistemic emphasis. If you want to impress somebody at coffee later, just talk about the epistemic emphasis. It's unabashed epistemic emphasis falls on what the Bible says. So if I can just add, go off script a little bit here for a moment. If you are embarrassed, I remember, I remember as a young Christian looking at people like Dr. Graham who would stand in front of a crowd and say, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, and I thought, and I thought in my hubris, oh, that is such a simplistic way of speaking about Christian theology. Can't, can't you give us a more sophisticated, now I, I believe the Bible is true, but it, there was this temptation to think, well, that's such a common way to talk about things. I regret that deeply. <laughs> I don't, I don't know what, yeah. I think Billy Graham, we, we might disagree on any number of things, but there is something wonderful and beautiful that the common refrain for a Christian preacher should be, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. It may sound simple, it may sound uncouth to the modern mind, but it is profoundly true. And Carl Henry would talk about the epistemic emphasis but Billy Graham would just say, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. And they were saying the same thing. So I don't know how that lands on you tonight. But the fundamental reality of an evangelical is someone who has absolute confidence that this book is the Word of God, that it declares truth, truth that is absolutely essential for human life, for knowing God, for knowing His Son, Jesus Christ, for having forgiveness of sins, eternal life, flourished life, abundant life, and hope forevermore. And that it is all worthwhile. It is all good. So evangelicals who would undermine the authority of Scripture, I think Carl Henry would say, you're really not evangelical. You may vote for the same political candidate. You may fit into the same socioeconomic tax bracket. You may have other certain cultural affinities. But if you don't uphold and defend the authority of the Scriptures, you really are not an evangelical. And the beautiful thing, by the way, I should add is, this opens the tent for other brothers and sisters in Christ who may not historically have thought of themselves evangelical because they don't vote the same way or they don't have the same cultural interests, but they do uphold and revere and love the Word of God. So that's one, uh, the, the, the emphasis on the Scriptures. Let me give you another one. Evangelical identity for Carl Henry is biblically ecumenical. And that might surprise you. And this may be where we may look back now and say, well, Dr. Henry was naive. I don't think it's quite that simple. Now, to be clear, as I mentioned early, earlier, Carl Henry wanted nothing to do with the ecumenical movements of theological liberalism. Now, theological liberalism, if you know anything about the modern ecumenical movement, it essentially says, let's all be together by minimizing truth. Now, it comes from a, a reasonable impulse, right? Uh, from the beginning, apostolic Christianity has emphasized the oneness of the church. We, we say it in the creed. One holy Catholic apostolic church, lowercase c, Catholic, right? Jesus prayed for the unity of his church. So schism and division within the body of Christ should be a horrific thing. 
That's a reasonable impulse. But the problem with theological liberalism and mainline Protestantism that Dr. Henry observed along with so many others was you can't have unity in falsehood. <laughs> we are united in truth. So for Dr. Henry, there was no draw to this kind of atheological, sentimental ecumenism. ecumenism excuse me. You've got to get the syllable in the right place. But he did understand that there was a, nece a necessary place for unity among evangelical Christians. He, he, he concluded that for liberal theology, those efforts toward unity were counterfeit, right? Premised upon a, fundamentalist understand, a fundamental misunderstanding about the nature of unity. But he did see a necessary place uh, for evangelical ecumenism, one that would be increasingly global in its consciousness, and profoundly theological. So what, what do we mean by this? And what did Henry mean by this? Well, he would contend that our common bond is indeed in divine revelation, and in particular in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Henry, if you were to follow a lot of his biographical material, he spent a lot of his life building networks of cooperation and fellowship not only in North America, but throughout the world. Uh, things like if you're familiar with the Lausanne Congress on global evangelization, he, he genuinely believed that evangelical Christians, if we can define evangelical theology, fundamentally and primarily based on divine revelation, then we can have an evangelical network. And, and, and if you think about even some of the things that I mentioned to you, Wheaton College, Christianity Today, Lausanne, um, Fuller Seminary, in his moment, it seemed to be a very easy-to-imagine scenario where you could have Lutherans and Methodists and Baptists and Presbyterians and Pentecostals all with their own denominational differences and beliefs, but united in certain core convictions drawn from Scripture. We might talk about this as, as, as you may, some of you may have heard of the terminology of theological triage that uh, Albert Moeller has, has developed about 20 years ago, that certain first order, second order, and third order things, and those first order things, if we're united in those, then we can actually cooperate in a lot of things. We may not be members of the same local church, but we can certainly cooperate for all sorts of kingdom enterprises. And that was the idea of, of Dr. Henry. Now, I just want to suggest to you, I, I think this has renewed relevance for our time. Uh, we are inhabiting, I think, particularly right now in the West and in North America maybe in particular, a time in which confessional Christianity is fracturing. And it is not always on theological lines. We are often allowing the culture to divide us or politics to divide us. Where we must divide over truth, there we have to go. But if we are dividing over things that are not uh, driven by biblical truth, they're driv driven more by political party or tribalism, then we have much to worry about. Christianity remains to this day the fastest growing religion in the world. Did you know that? And it is the only global religion to be as broadly distributed by continent as it is. If I were to take you to, even Islam, if I were to take you to any other major world religion, you would see it skews heavily on one continent. It may have presence on other continents, but it's only Christianity that is as evenly distributed as it is. It's a remarkable testimony to the power of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. And yet, I fear that for far too many American evangelicals, 
we are tempted to live our lives and approach the path of Christian discipleship as though there are no other brothers or sisters anywhere else on the planet. And we give very little thought to the global evangelical movement, including perhaps particularly those of our brothers and sisters suffering persecution for the name of Christ. But what is true globally is also true at home. As I've tried to point out, Carl Henry was no theological minimalist. He was deeply concerned with understanding and knowing all of God's Word, all of it to be true, all of it necessary and vital. Nor did he reject the place of denominations. They had their value and their place in his worldview. Nor was he against confessions of faith that might look different with different distinctives in different groups. All those things were good and fine for him, and they are certainly needed in our day. But he did advocate for, and he spent much of his energy building, efforts to see evangelical Christians cooperate on mission for the sake of the kingdom of Christ. We need not be competitors or rivals, much less enemies. Unfortunately, there are those in our time who would seem to relish and perhaps even profit from sowing division and discord among the people of God. There are those that would insist that anyone who doesn't agree with them on even those most tertiary matters is now suspect, not to be trusted or to be avoided at all costs. Such thinking is not only lamentable and provincial, it is inconsistent with the reality of the body of Christ. If we are united by this word, by this gospel, by this truth, then does it really matter who you voted for in the last presidential election? I mean, it matters, but enough to divide your church, to divide your fellowship? You can say more about that if you have questions in a moment. I'm sure there's nothing provocative there. <laughs> Let me give you another evangelical identity category for, from Dr. Henry. Evangelical identity is not indifferent to injustice. Here you go. American evangelicalism has long wrestled with its own seemingly at times schizophrenic tension between the command on the one hand to proclaim the gospel, to boldly proclaim the gospel. And we can say, and we must say much about what we mean by the gospel because it is not up for interpretation. It is not subjective. It is an objective body of information that must be proclaimed and communicated so that men, women, and children will come to know the one true and living God, okay? It is the gospel. On the one hand, we have that impulse and that command. And at the same time, to pursue justice, We'll say something in a moment about how we define that, but to pursue justice, reconciliation, and righteousness. Henry was deeply aware of this tension that has existed in American Christianity and in evangelicalism. So do we send missionaries to evangelized unreached people groups? Because if we don't, they will die dead in their sins and spend eternity apart from God in hell under judgment. Or... Do we advocate for the vulnerable and the oppressed? Do we care for the poor? Do we clothe the naked and feed the hungry, as Jesus commanded us to do? Which do we do? Both. <laughs> Henry understood that asking the question in this way, this either-or way, presumed a false dichotomy, one that woefully underestimates the totality of what it means to proclaim the good news of Christ's kingdom. 
But the thing that you and I perhaps need to hear tonight is that his plea for evangelical opposition to injustice was grounded again in God's own character and revelation. It was a definition of justice and injustice, not constructed based on cultural preferences or norms of the day, but on enduring and eternal truth. All of it, even the stuff that makes you uncomfortable, that includes the stuff in the Sermon on the Mount and in the book of Amos. And I got news for you, when it comes to justice issues, there's something in this book to make everyone uncomfortable. Evangelicals, I'm going to give you a quote here from from him. This is from another book that he wrote called A Plea for Evangelical Demonstration. Here's how he put it. Evangelicals know that injustice is reprehensible, not simply because it is anti-human, but because it is anti-God. Evangelicals must make God's word and ways known because it is the divine will and demand that is flouted by social injustice. So when Carl Henry is talking about, as you just heard read here, social injustice, and he'll speak regularly of social justice, he doesn't mean by that necessarily what you and I hear in 2021. I just want to acknowledge that. He means by that a standard of justice that is defined by this book. But I got news for you. My hunch is that if you let this book define your standard of justice, it's going to make you uncomfortable. Because it, has, it did in Jesus' day, it did in the age of the prophets, and it has for 2,000 years. Because what? It demands us to die to ourselves and to prefer, the, prefer others above ourselves. It's never been comfortable. But evangelicals represent the legacy of Carl Henry when they plant new churches and serve the poor, when they invest in biblical translations and organize to oppose human trafficking, when they evangelize their lost neighbors and they lobby for legislation that protects the unborn. They go together. Henry grounded this balance in a deeply biblical understanding about what it means to be made the people of God in this present evil age. Let me give you again another comment from him. This one comes from 1965. I mean, if you think that 2021 feels like an era of social unrest and disequilibrium and everybody's arguing... Let me take you to 1965, and then we can fast forward to 1968. I mean, the, the, the country was on edge. There was an era of transformation and of instability and disequilibrium. And here's what Henry, how he put it, that Christians are citizens of two worlds, that a divine mandate enjoins both their preaching of the gospel and their promotion of social justice, that the lordship of Christ over all of life involves socio-cultural obligations that Christians bear a political responsibility. These are all historic evangelical emphases. Listen to this. The heritage of evangelical Christianity includes both Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and his delineation of the Good Samaritan and Paul's account of, of civil government as an agent of justice. They go together. Now, we have to define them. We have to think through them carefully and biblically according to God's Word, but we dare not pit one against the other, the great, the great commission and the great commandment. Let me add something to this to you, another evangelical identity category. Evangelical identity cannot be severed from personal holiness. And I might have had you on the justice stuff, 
I might have had an amen on that, but sometimes the justice people don't give me the amens on personal holiness. And the personal holiness people don't amen on the justice stuff. Why is that? Well, this might surprise you. In many ways, in a great many ways, Carl Henry was a son of American fundamentalism. And when you hear fundamentalism, you might be tempted to think about a list of rules. This is what you don't do. You don't go to movies, you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't dance. That's kind of the caricature we have of, of American fundamentalism. He was not reluctant to offer critiques of the movement. Uh, again, you, you, some of you got a copy of his 1947 short little book, The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism. In that book, he offered a particularly stinging critique of fundament fundamentalism's tendency to withdraw into its own ghetto, abandoning the public square and the socio-ethical impulses of the New Testament. And he noted that fundamentalism had become more preoccupied with individual sins, dancing, smoking, gambling, but it had neglected larger matters of sin and suffering in the culture. So you, you might be tempted to think that Carl Henry had no concern for the subject of personal holiness. He's only concerned with the culture, right? That could not be farther from the truth. In fact, Henry understood that evangelicals could ill afford to devote themselves to any, any meaningful social action if they had abandoned the Scripture's commands regarding personal ethics. He actually wrote an entire book. It's no longer in print, but thanks to the Internet, you can get about anything these days. He wrote a whole book on personal Christian ethics. There was hope that he would run, one day write a book on social ethics, so write two companion books in, in Christian ethics. It's, I think, very telling that he gave priority to developing and finishing his book on personal ethics before he got to the social ethics. In my estimation, this again has significance for our own time. Those evangelical Christians who espouse a fervent dedication and concern for issues of political or social action but seem indifferent to personal holiness have entered into dangerous territory. We all need to be reminded of this. There's always a danger of legalism, of self-righteousness, and of, of adding extra-biblical rules of men. But those dangers should not dissuade us from the clear and consistent biblical command to the people of God. Be holy as I am holy. I'll give you another one. Evangelical identity is not antithetical to an ordered patriotism. Now, I may have really upset some of you. I don't know. I just thought I'd go for it. Resolving the apparent tension between our earthly and heavenly citizenships has been a subject of attention for nearly two millennia of Christian thought. It did not just happen in 2020 <laughs> when a cat with a mob or a capital insurrection. The great theologian of late antiquity, Augustine of Hippo, did so most famously in the city of God. Now, for Augustine, he proposed that in the present age, Christians live as inhabitants of two cities, the city of man and the city of God. They're marked by different virtues and systems, but only one is eternal and lasting, the city of God. And yet Christians on this side of Christ's return, they cannot escape the city of man. They still live in the city of man. So for Augustine, those questions took on a particular relevance in the context of the Roman Empire, especially after Constantine and the declaration of Christianity as the official religion of the empire. 
If Rome was no longer overtly pagan, but now Christianity was the official religion of the emperor, how should Christians understand their loyalties? I think American evangelicals wrestle with those questions in their own ways. There seem to be two twin threats that pull in their own direction. On the one hand, we might be tempted by those who would spurn any expression of patriotism, civic duty, or love of country. From this extreme, or this perspective, seemingly any such sentiment is just cloaking complicity in the evils of colonialism, of capitalism, or oppression. So shame on you if you love your country. Shame on you if you celebrate the good things in her history. But the other extreme is also powerful. This extreme, the other extreme, contends, or seems to contend, that any criticism of the nation is out of bounds, and at times even sends the signal, intentionally or not, that God has some sort of unique or special covenantal relationship with the United States. Something, by the way, that is not contained in this book. Or that the future of the church is somehow inextricable from the future of the nation. That if the nation falls, the church falls. If the nation rises, the church rises. Both of these twin threats, brothers and sisters, are to be rejected. Henry, Carl Henry, was quick to celebrate and commend the legacy of democracy. One of the books that was handed out to some of you tonight was a reprint of his little treatise, Is Democracy Dead? Carl Henry believed deeply in the proposition of democracy, of equal human rights, and of the need for all human beings everywhere to have freedom to flourish. He was an ardent anti-communist. He believed that Marxism destroys cultures and people. And yet, he refused to bow his knee to the idolatry of Christian nationalism, as we may call it now. He was always quick to caution Christians to be mindful of our dual citizenship and of the priority of our identity in Christ. Uh, there's a debate, you may, some of you may know even now, particularly among Catholic theologians, um, and, and political theorists about whether liberal democracy, and I'm using that in the classical sense of liberalism, whether that still has value today or whether it needs to be rejected. I think Carl Henry comes along and says, well, that's an interesting conversation, but what's this book actually say? <laughs> if people are made in the image of God, then the state has no claim on their conscience before God, no claim on their, on their religious worship and practice. So for Carl Henry, democracy, things like like freedom of religion and freedom of worship, those were not merely interesting political or theoretical questions. They were ones that were profoundly rooted in this book. So when we have conversations even in 2021 about, well, is, do we still need to have, is, is democracy dead? Actually, that book's more relevant than you may realize. Let me give you a couple others. Uh, evangelical identity should be marked by hope. Evangelical identity should be marked by hope. This may be one of the things we especially need to hear in our time. In the vortex of cultural change and social change, American evangelicals have often proven to be among the most worrisome and fearful. We get really jumpy and panicky. We quickly fall into kind of dystopian narratives about, well, just you watch, in four years, 
we'll be lucky if we're even alive, you know. And, and, and it has very little to do with whether or not Christ is returning. It has more of with whoever's in political power. Just follow social media, blogs, and a lot of Christian publishing, and you might just wonder how secure this whole kingdom of Christ really is. Of course, when Jesus promised to build his church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it, he meant it. Better than most, Carl Henry understood that even in the darkest of times, the evangel, the gospel, tells us that, our, that hope is our original factory setting, so to speak. We are hope people because we're resurrection people. We labor for truth. We advocate for justice. We suffer persecution for righteousness. But we do it with a hopefulness that only makes sense because of the promises secured by a resurrected Christ who is reigning and ruling over the universe right now. Listen to this. This is from his Uneasy Conscience book that I mentioned earlier. Therefore, evangelicalism can view the future with a sober optimism, grounded not only in the assurance of the ultimate triumph of righteousness, but also in the conviction that divine redemption can be a potent factor in any age. You may think, well, that, that's, in, I guess, an interesting quote. He wrote that in, it was published in 1947, written in 1946, really. Right as World War II has just ended, the Cold War is barely a beginning, and the world seems to be completely unstable. The beginning of an atomic age. I mean, some of you are old enough to remember doing bomb drills under your desks as though that was going to protect you from a nuclear holocaust. So consider for a moment, I mean, do you feel like the earth is shaking right now in 2021? Do you feel like our lives and our culture are marked by instability and uncertainty? Do you feel that anxiety in your own heart? Well, Carl Henry's writing this in 1946, 1947, when the prevalent fear in America was the Soviets have a bomb that could wipe out a whole city? You mean to tell me we could just, this whole thing could just blow up in a moment? That kind of puts some things into perspective for you and I, doesn't it? I love this about Carl Henry. He was able to look right into the darkness, right into the most hostile challenges and threats to the kingdom of Christ, and never despair. Never despair. Now, later in life, you'll read some things. He was deeply troubled about trends he saw, but he retained his joy and his hope. The only way that's possible, quite literally the only way, is to go to bed at night with anchored confidence that the God who speaks is also the God who saves. And if he were asked, I think that's precisely what Carl Henry would want us to learn and remember. One final marker of evangelical identity, and um, then I'll give you, if time allows, some other material here, but, but this last marker of evangelical identity. And I haven't gotten into everything, so please, if you think, well, he left out this. He's a heretic. No, just ask me in the questions if you think I've left something out. I, I know I have. But there's the last one, I've, just because of time, I want to finish with. Evangelical identity compels us toward evangelism. Evangelical identity compels us toward evangelism. If the evangel is really good news, then it matters a great deal. Unfortunately, for far too many of us, if our lives could bear witness about it in our actions and in our witness, it would seem that maybe we don't really believe it's good news. 
Carl Henry was famous for saying the good news is only good news if it gets there on time. He was a theologian and a brilliant one to be sure, but he had the heart of an evangelist. And he devoted much of his life to organizing evangelicals to greater effectiveness in the task of global mission. Theology, that is to say, theology and mission went hand in hand for Carl Henry. Theology was not a merely abstract, theological, esoteric, academic exercise. No, it existed to drive and to motivate mission and evangelism. And all of it grounded in an ethic of love. Listen to this. This is from another book of his called Evangelicals at the Brink of Crisis. It would be a supreme act of lovelessness on the part of the Christian community to withhold from the body of humanity lost in sin the evangel that Christ died for sinners and that the new birth without which no man can see the kingdom of God is available on the condition of personal repentance and faith. I love the fact that he anchors this call to evangelism in love. <laughs> so you have a heart for justice? You, you, you want to see Christians following the way of the Good Samaritan on the road of Jericho? Wonderful. But your love will be measured by your words as well, not only by your actions. Do we testify to the risen Christ and to the hope that's found only in him? I think if Carl Henry were still with us, he'd be really old, but he would, he would undoubtedly nonetheless be delighted by advances of Christianity in the past decade, particularly in the global south. But I think he would also continue to summon those of us living in North America and Europe not to shrink back from personal evangelism, as antiquated as it may seem to some. One of the most memorable anecdotes I've heard about Carl Henry in this regard came from a visit he made to Southern Seminary, where I serve, a visit he paid in the late 1990s. He was an old man by then, of course, uh, and fully retired, although still active in his own mind. He sat in on a PhD seminar in systematic theology, and near the end of this class, a doctoral student asked Dr. Henry what he thought the most urgent theological question of the day was. If you remember anything about the late 1990s, there was a lot of concern about postmodernism and deconstructionism and names like Derrida and Foucault and all these other theological developments that had come along with, with this. And, and they were expecting something along, you know, I mean, this is the guy who talks about epistemic, you know, challenges and they were expecting something like that. What's the most important theological question, Dr. Henry? And seemingly without it skipping a beat, he countered, do you know the risen Christ? That'll preach. In every age, the most important theological question of the day for everyone who's ever lived, do you know the risen Christ? Surely there can be no more, more, no more important question for any of us. Any Christian movement that dilutes the urgency of evangelism has amputated the evangel from evangelicalism. We are not embarrassed by the biblical doctrine of conversion. We should not be. Rather, the doctrine of conversion is a glorious cause for hope and confidence. It's the assurance we have that the power of God is the power that transforms sinful humans, bringing new life by grace such that no one, no one is too far off. No one is too far gone. 
Efforts to undermine confidence in biblical authority are hardly new. And Carl Henry faced one after another in his time. Fact is, disregard for God's word is as ancient as Genesis 3. It may take new forms in different times, but the root dynamics are the same. That is to say, if evangelicalism is going to have any real value moving forward, much less any genuine redemptive impact in the culture, its own identity and mission must be shaped by biblical truth. To put it another way, we are not at freedom to reinterpret what God has said. At times, we can say more about this in the discussion, this will increasingly make evangelicals the equivalent of a social pariah. I think this is one of the things that Dr. Henry probably did not anticipate fully in his lifetime. Perhaps this is apparent nowhere more powerfully right now than on matters related to sexual ethics. I don't think Dr. Henry envisioned the day coming when it would be very difficult for an evangelical Christian to be a vice president of a Fortune 500 company because of their, their views on sexual ethics. But if God really has spoken definitively and clearly, we are not at liberty to throw off or to amend what he has revealed. At the same time, this will at times step on our religious toes. Carl Henry knew this because the fact is that the Word of God will show us those areas of our own hearts and minds that have been shaped more by the world, the culture, than by divine truth. And that can be a very painful experience when it happens, but it is absolutely essential and it is a kindness from the Lord. Let me wrap this up by giving you, I just want to give you four, this comes directly from Dr. Henry. Uh, these were some propositions he made, some suggestions he made by, about how he thought American evangelicals could engage with society. Again, this is from the spring of 1965, uh, a period in American history and culture that was marked by a lot of similar dynamics to today. Economic uncertainty, uh, uh, racial unrest and turmoil, deep, deep national dealing, uh, a national uh, wrestling with the history of racism, uh, a war in Vietnam, questions about gender and sexuality. Here's how he put it. These were, as he called it, four controlling convictions, and they're brief. First, he, he, he contended that, that, uh, that evangelicals must maintain a commitment to the centrality of conversion kind of what I was just describing a moment ago. Here's what he said. The Christian church's distinctive dynamic for social transformation is personal regeneration by the Holy Spirit, and the proclamation of this divine offer of redemption is the church's primary task. Do you want to change society? You better believe in the power of conversion. And, and, the, and the wonder, the miracle of personal regeneration. We can talk about structures and systems and all that other stuff, and Carl Henry was not reluctant to do that. But if you, if you give your attention to that and you neglect the reality of conversion, the impulse of evangelism, you will have no lasting redemptive impact on, on culture or, or, this, or society. Secondly, so one was this, this commitment on, to conversion. Second, Christian preaching cannot fail to apply the whole counsel of God to questions of justice. You can hear this one, quote, while the corporate or institutional church has no divine mandate, jurisdiction, or special competence for approving legislative proposals or political parties and persons, the pulpit is responsible 
for proclaiming divinely revealed principles of social justice as a part of the whole counsel of God. Now again, we can unpack in a moment what he means and what he doesn't mean by social justice, if that gives you a heart palpitation. But what's he saying? The church has no mandate to speak to who's running for office or things like that. But if you're going to if you're going to get up and preach the word of God, you better preach the whole word of God. Let me move on. <laughs> Third, for most Christians, Henry would argue, our everyday work is the hinge between private and social. Let me read this quote for you. I love this about Henry because I think this has been lost. So for many ordinary Christians, you might say, well, I don't travel the conference circuit. I don't have a lobbyist in Washington who advocates for me. I don't write books. How do I, what does it mean for me to bear witness as an evangelical in my world, in the, in the context that the Lord has placed me? And Carl Henry here says, it's probably going to be for most Christians in your work. Listen to this. The most natural transition from private to social action occurs in the world of daily work. In the view of Christian's need of the Christian's need to consecrate his labor to the glory of God and to the service of mankind. I find that to be so practical because we live in an age when cultural engagement is measured by how many likes you get on Facebook or how many retweets you get on Twitter or how many people have read your book. And what Carl Henry here is saying is essentially what the reformers said is that actually a, a robust understanding of Christian vocation your everyday work is sanctified, set apart unto the Lord, that's where your love for neighbors actually going to show up. It's going to show up at the water cooler in your office or in the, in the auto shop that you work at and how you treat your customers or how you care for your employees. It's going to show up in the way you, you show compassion for the suffering of those who are hurting. And I fear, unfortunately, in evangelicalism, we have completely neglected that. And we've put so much emphasis on what we tweet or what we post, etc., etc., etc. Fourth and lastly, individual Christians. So these are, again, his four controlling convictions about how evangelicals can engage with society. Individual Christians should not abandon the public square. I think, before I read this quote from him, this is a particularly powerful temptation for many. There are many who would look at maybe expressions of Christian political engagement that they see and they go, if that's what engaging the public square is, I want nothing to do with it. Because that looks like, I don't know what that is, but I don't think that's the way of Jesus. And the temptation then is to just run away or to retreat. Or others may look at it and say, boy, the, 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 the hostility is so fierce. If I'm going to engage in the public square, I don't know if I'll make it out alive. Well, listen to what Henry says here. As citizens of two worlds, there it is again, individual church members have the sacred duty to extend God's purpose of redemption through the church and also to extend God's purpose of justice and order through civil government. I don't know if you caught what he's doing there, but he's saying you as an individual Christian, you have a role to play in your church in God's purpose of redemption seeing those who are dead in their sins brought to saving faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, redeemed from sin and death and hell. And to extend God's purpose of justice and order through civil government. You really do have an obligation in that regard. Christians are to distinguish themselves by civil obedience 
except where this conflicts with the commandments of God, and are to use every political opportunity to support and promote just laws, to protest social injustice, and to serve their fellow men. You want to pit those two against each other? Carl Henry seems to be saying, you can't do it. <laughs> and if you're trying to figure out how do you love your neighbor as yourself, you fundamentally start by participating in God's work of redemption through the proclamation of the gospel and the charge given to the church. But that doesn't negate the impulse to love your neighbor well in society, in civic life, in advocating for just laws, in protesting injustice, in immorality and wickedness. They go together. Let me just end it with this. I'll, I'll pray and then we'll see what questions you have. Uh, I would, if, if you want to read more about Carl Henry... I would encourage you, pick up Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism, start there. And then we didn't give it out tonight. I don't think it's as readily available, but you can get it online. There's a wonderful collection of essays that Carl Henry wrote, published by Lexham Press. And I'm horrible with titles, so I'm sorry, but it, you can get it easily. But let me just suggest to you why I think, if I haven't made my case here tonight, uh, you may never read anything that Carl Henry wrote. I understand that. I, I don't suffer under the illusion that I've convinced you. And as I said earlier, I at least hinted at, I think Dr. Henry was wrong on some things. I think he underestimated some things that were happening in, even in his own lifetime that were, were deeply challenging in ways he did not anticipate. But at his heart, this was a man who deeply believed in the fact that God has spoken and that that means for you and for me, we can have unflinching confidence and hope and certainty that God has spoken once for all in an absolutely reliable, trustworthy, and understandable way, and that the most fundamental and urgent need that every human being has is to know this one true and living God who's spoken by His inspired and errant and fallible Word. And if it's really as simple as that, there's a lot more we could say, but if, if that really is what it all boils down to, that's just a wonderfully thrilling hope. Who wouldn't want to participate in what God's doing in the world right now? That's another th thought I would leave you with as we end this. For Dr. Henry, as I mentioned earlier, he was characterized by hope. He was characterized by joy, even though he saw all the threats on the landscape. Well, most of them. Why would that be? I can't help but look at the time that we're living in today and conclude, what an exciting time to be alive as a Christian. <laughs> you may be tempted otherwise, because we're all feeding ourselves off of Facebook and cable news. But look at the world around us. Look at all the questions being asked. Look at the suffering around us. Look at the strife and the hostility. And you and I are the people who've come to know, by God's grace, through His Word, that the only solution to those problems is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we walk around with remarkable freedoms and all sorts of tools and technologies that can help us amplify the message and get it out. I think if a previous generation of evangelicals were with us here, they'd say, snap out of it. Look at the opportunities that you've been given by the Lord, and you're fighting with one another, you're feeding yourself on social media and Netflix, and the world is full of opportunities for Christian witness for you. If you'll just give yourself to the work, if you'll look to the Lord Jesus and follow after Him, and rest in His Word, in joy and in hope. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we do confess that we are so easily tempted to lower our gaze 
to the things of this world and to plod along, forgetting who we are in Christ and the sure hope we have in his finished work and his victory at Calvary. We pray, Lord, that you would indeed work among us as individuals, as brothers and sisters, to sharpen and deepen our commitment to your word, that it would be a lamp and a light, that it would lead us and guide us, and that your Holy Spirit would would direct our path. We pray for boldness and courage in proclaiming the whole counsel of God and sharing the gospel to those who have not yet heard and believed, and in loving our neighbors well. Give us wisdom to do this, we pray, and give us hearts of love, we ask, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You mean the local church in particular? Okay. Yeah, I, I think you heard a little bit in, uh, in that, I think it was the last quote I read for you. You know, every word, when you read Carl Henry, every word is, he's, he's an, well, not always efficient. He's very verbose at times. But in his mind, at least, every word is doing something in the sentence. And so you heard in him this talk about individual Christians. Um, I think Dr. Henry had a, a very robust vision of of kind of a fully-orbed Christian ethic, we might say, of love for neighbor. So one of his books, for example, is a history of the Pacific Garden Mission, a homeless uh, mission, a, a mission, an outreach to homeless persons in Southern California. Um, he deeply believed in Christian, what we might call mercy ministries and things of that nature. But he understood that the cornerstone was the proclamation of the apostolic message, the gospel, that Jesus Christ has come and died in the place of sinners and offers now complete salvation, complete forgiveness, and eternal life for all who who put their faith in in him. Um, And Henry at times is a bit, I mean, he lived so long that I can't really tell you, Will, he was static here. And he himself would talk about mistakes he made or miscalculations he made. He was at times reticent to issue kind of evangelical statements. At other times, he was, seemed to be happy to do that. Um, I'll give you an example. He, in the controversies over inerrancy, I mean, I, I dare anybody to do better than Carl Henry when it comes to defending biblical inerrancy and, and the authority of the Bible. But he was also concerned by those evangelicals he saw that were weaponizing that doctrine to the exclusion of all the doctrine of Scripture. Now, again, he, he thought it was absolutely essential, but he thought if, if the only thing you want to argue about is inerrancy, but you'll give up on other parts of the doctrine of Scripture, then you've missed it. And so he was concerned about that. When it came to social issues, he got into some, some uh, conflict with the publisher of Christianity Today, 
So you'll read, for example, some of his editorials during that period in the late 50s and into the 60s where he's, he's on the one hand, very conservative, but he is pushing for, and at least show, saying, and, and he was a capitalist, but he would say, there are ways in which sin can corrupt capitalism so that it can be, it, it can be, it can be perverted, so to speak. And he didn't always get affirmation from his publisher on that. So he, he found himself at times in this tension. And I think that meant that he was careful. Uh, there was another moment in his life in 1972. So his son, Paul, Paul Henry was a congressman from Wisconsin. And Paul, with a number of other younger evangelicals, they adopted what was called the Chicago Statement in 1972 on social action. So you had the uh, you had statements on inerrancy, and then you had this statement on evangelical action. And it, it, I think Dr. Henry later regretted putting his name to it, not because he fundamentally repudiated anything that was in that statement, but the way that it was used and, and kind of leveraged as a tool for political fighting, um, he, he, I think he lamented that. So he really didn't put his name to every, you know, a lot of statements. And as you may have noticed in our day and age, there's a great deal of pressure on evangelical leaders and pastors to sign this statement. And if you don't sign it, die heretic, you know. Um, I think he also recognized that the greatest gift a church can give their pastor is to affirm and celebrate the preaching of the word. And your pastor may not always have the right political candidate scorecard for you when you leave the room, but if, if he's preaching the Word of God to you, that is a gift far more glorious than you can even begin to imagine, and you are being well-fed and well-cared for. Um, it's ironic what Henry, I think, did not anticipate is kind of where we are now in this kind of post-secular America uh, where everything is politics. I mean, this is other, other commentators saw it coming. But the right and the left are both guilty of it, where everything becomes politicized. Uh, and it's, 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 it's unfortunately fused into the church a little bit. Uh, you can't just have a, a disagreement about the tax code or health care. It's, well, if you disagree with me on health care, then you must be a Marxist. <laughs> and you're just at each other's throats because everything's politicized. And I, think, I don't think Henry anticipated that we would be in that situation where we are. So I think if he were here, he would say the best thing a pastor can do is to preach the word and don't worry too much about political statements or manifestos. Um, and he was, as I said, he was somewhat burned by that from that experience with, with the 1972 statement. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, there's a lot there. 
Yeah. Well, here's one of the things that's changed, and I think not to blame Dr. Henry for this, I don't know that anyone fully anticipated it. Dr. Henry lived in a world in which it seemed that evangelical Christianity was on the ascent. And there was what we might call social capital still affixed to being an evangelical. That is to say, your neighbors might have thought, boy, they're really into church, they go every week, but, but they actually are pretty good neighbors. And we're kind of like having him as a partner in the law firm, or we really, we're really glad that she's, you know, she's chairing the PTA. Or, uh, there was social capital associated with being evangelical-ish and ascribing to the kind of the worldview and the moral codes associated with evangelical faith and practice. And so that meant for Dr. Henry, it was, well, what do you need to do? If you're a really bright 18-year-old who's solid in your faith, you need to go to Harvard or Chicago or USC, and you need to aim for the stars, and then you need to go to a PhD or go to law school, and you need to end up either in Washington or Manhattan. And, and he understood that, that culture is upstream from everything else. If you can, if you can impact the, the corridors of elite culture, you can shape everything else. And at the time, it seemed, those doors might be increasingly open to people of evangelical conviction. We've entered in and we live in a very different world than what Dr. Henry lived in and I think what he imagined. Now it seems to be, not merely for some of the, I mean, we can say more about the, some of the categories you alluded to, but just being a an evangelical Christian right now, it's not only that it doesn't afford you social capital, you might be a pariah. Uh, you will be a pariah. And it's not, not even just, oh, no, you... Yeah, a pariah, if you know the philosopher Hannah Arendt, she, she wrote a lot on this, especially as a reflecting back on, on anti-Semitism in, in, in Germany leading up to World War II and all that, and, and the ways in which Jews were mischaracterized or represented in, in European cultures. And fascinating figure, not a Christian. If you know her term, the banality of evil, she's fascinated with this question of how can a culture, a whole nation, get so numb to, to, to evil that you end up with a holocaust, right? That's one of her big ethical questions. But she, she uses this terminology in this category of, of a pariah, and where you basically are a social outcast. You're no longer not, you're not even neutral in terms of your social capital, that is to say the, the benefits that you gain by per, being a part of this group. You're actually a, you're at a net loss. Your neighbors, you're like an outcast. And I don't think Dr. Henry anticipated that, but that's I think what you're alluding to is, I, I mentioned to the interns at lunch, I hope I can break the cone of silence that was in that lunch, but I could be wrong, but it's very hard for me to imagine that you're ever going to see, at least in our lifetime, an evangelical Christian appointed as president at Westchester University. And I don't mean that as a statement of, to cast judgment or criticism of the university, it's just to say, if you actually believe what this book says it says, particularly when it comes to sexual ethics and identity issues, you will not just be seen as outdated or you know, kind of a quaint religious enthusiast, as you might have been in Dr. Henry's time, you'll be seen as an enemy, as somebody who's propagating hateful, dehumanizing speech and rhetoric and hurting people because you believe that God made men and women in his image, male and female, he made them, and marriages for one woman and one man for a lifetime, and you could go down the whole list, right? Um, so, I think that he did not fully anticipate, and that's, I think we still have a lot of evangelicals, 
if I can be, brothers and sisters who have failed to comprehend how fast the ground has moved under their feet. And so they still think, boy, I've got this really sharp daughter, this great son. If I can just get them into Harvard, the whole future is ahead of them. Now, we do need Christians at Harvard. We need them at those places. Um, but it's a, the, the ball game's very different now than it was. So what would I say to those Christians is, and I want, I'd want to say this with all the pastoral sensitivity I can, it's very easy for somebody in my position, and I gather you're a pastor, you know, my paycheck is not dependent on some of the same dynamics theirs is. But I suspect for a great many Christians in Fortune 500 companies, it's going to mean, are you willing to sacrifice your career advancement for the sake of faithfulness to Christ? And that's a lot easier said than done. And it's going to require the, the life of the body, the corporate life of the church, to come alongside those brothers and sisters and say, hey, we realize that bearing the cross of Christ now feels a little heavier to you. And that that promotion that you were hoping for, that job opportunity, that, that way you envisioned your career, um, it's, we realize there's a sense of loss there. You've sacrificed something. Christ has called you to do that. I think there are a lot of pastors who are ready to say to their church members, yep, that door is going to be closed for you, but we have not yet maybe had the pastoral sensitivity and care to say, now how can we minister to you through that? Because that's, that's going to be very challenging. Um, we are, it is going to be clarifying, and that, that's a little scary to think we're going to, I think, find out in some of our own congregations where people's hearts really are. Um, but... I don't think that, the, I may just in a meandering way here land the plane, I don't think the inevitable outcome or the option available to us is cultural retreat. So that's, I just if I could add this caveat, I, I think some people are seeing this, there are, there's, a, there's a certain spectrum of confessional Christianity, and even maybe in the Reformed world in particular, if you'll allow me to say that, that looks at what's happening and says, okay, let's just get out. And let's move to maybe remote parts of the country, get off the grid, and build our own little, what Rod Dreher calls his Benedict option. And Rod's great. We've met. But we see, I think, evangelicalism is very different from the world that Rod envisions as an Eastern Orthodox Christian. Um, we don't have the option of cultural retreat. <laughs> the Church of Jesus Christ has not had that option. And um, so I'd want to say to those Christians, following Jesus in Manhattan is going to be hard. Following him in Westchester is going to be hard. But this life is but a vapor, and Christ will reward faithfulness, and the gospel is alive, and we are, and I'm, I'm unashamed to say this, we are as evangelicals, we are a revival people. We should pray. I mean, I, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but we should pray for a great awakening. In, in so many ways, those great awakenings of the 1740s, early 1800s, those great awakenings were in part, to, to part of the credit for, say, example, the eradication of slavery can and should be attributed in part to the revivals of the great awakenings. You don't, I mean, George Whitfield was a slaveholder. Oh, now we're really off in the weeds, I'm sorry, but George Whitfield was a slaveholder, yes. But the preaching of the gospel was you can, die, you can tie a direct line from George Whitfield to the abolition of slavery in the British Parliament decades later. And the same holds true in places like Westchester 
and places where abolitionism took root, there were secular, more secular versions, but at its heart, it was a revivalistic impulse. So I, my point just being, yes, let's be realistic with it. We need to care for those who are, who are suddenly being confronted with the cost of following Christ, and, and we need to prepare our children for that, I think. And at the same time, we don't retreat, we don't despair, we pray for revival. And not just because we want to have comfortable lives, but we know if, if our culture goes down this path, it's going to lead to devastating consequences for people. It will not lead to human flourishing. So I don't know if I answered your question as directly as you were hoping for, but uh, it's a, it was a big one. Any, any other follow-up? Or it looked like maybe you did. I don't know. That's right. Yeah, it's a great question. And, and in academic circles, not a new one. You're right. Um, it all goes to what's, I don't know if anyone here is a professor, but what's called tenure. And so there's been for at least 50 years, evangelical scholars have known there's, there's at least been a, ten, uh, a tendency for many to say, okay, get to tenure, and then you can write what you really want to write. Um, so it, it, the whole tenure game, you know, rightly gets a lot of criticism by people who think, well, it just enables underperforming faculty and da da da, da. Well, it actually has also helped protect a lot of evangelical Christians in higher education. Um, but I, I think that's where it depends on the motive of the heart. So I've known faithful Christian scholars, men and women, who, who do... They, they, would, they would probably put it as, you know, Christ's command to be as innocent as dove and as shrewd as serpents. They have not, they have not said anything that, that is at odds with their biblical conviction, but they're just choosing to publish on topics that aren't directly connected to, to the Christian faith. And so they, they just avoid some of that conflict. But where I want to look at as a pastor would be, does that shrewdness in their vocation, is it actually reflecting a coldness or an indifference towards their evangelical identity. In other words, if they're sharing the gospel with the lost, if they're following Christ, if they're loving their families, that tells me a lot more about the state of their soul and their faithfulness to Christ than what journal articles they published or what's in their 10-year review packet. Um, so I want to I lean into that, and it's probably going to tell me more. At the same time, so I, I, don't, I would not say to someone, well, Unless your first book is, you know, your first monograph, your first published you know, art journal article is, is directly dealing with issues of Christian truth, you've, you've failed Christ. I wouldn't say that. Um, I do think it's going to get harder and harder for Christians to navigate those pressures. I mean, it used to be if you were an evangelical Christian, so you might not make it through in the philosophy or the English departments because they'd smoke you out there. But you might make it through in the business department or in the medical school or you know, even history, maybe a little harder there. But my point would now be you can't escape these issues anywhere. So if you're a, medic, a med student or you want to be dean of your medical school, I promise you issues of sexual ethics are going to come up because what are you going to do about uh, gender reassignment surgeries? 
and hormone therapies for teenagers and what you have to have an ethical position on that. And that, I guarantee you, I don't think at least Carl Henry had any anticipation that we'd be living in a world like that. So, um, yeah, so I would, I, would, I would still say to a Christian scholar, who, if they, a young man or woman who wanted to go on, do a PhD in a secular institution, pursue impact for the kingdom and the academy, I would just say, count the cost. Be ready to know, like, it could go in an instant. I mean, it's, it's a very fragile enterprise and make sure you are deeply rooted in a healthy local church. If you can do that and just hold to it very loosely, being willing to, sac- to surrender it if, God, if that's what Christ calls you to do, you, 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 you got a good chance. But if you aren't rooted in a healthy local church, if this is part of you, like your identity, like I can't imagine myself doing anything but being a tenured professor at this university and writing these books, then I do think that's a, that's a scary thing because... It's a scary thing in any generation, but especially right now, yeah.